1: Even hardened genre fans will find themselves whimpering at each new revelation. Publishers Weekly. The Infected Trilogy is an unabridged three-season audio fiction series from number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Infected is a marvel of gonzo in-your-face up-to-the-minute terror. Lincoln Child, New York Times bestselling author of Relic and the Pendergrass series. 88 episodes, 53 hours of horror are free and available now wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 281. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, I'm on the road for the next couple weeks, across the big-ass rectangles of the United States Midwest, biking various trails with fly rod in tow, on my way to Utah, where paleontologist and kick-ass Drabblecast fan Dean Ernest has invited me to come help dig up dinosaur bones. How can a sane human being say no to that? Broadcasting this show from Bloomington, Indiana, where I teamed up with Drabblecast tech guru and archivist Tom Baker to read this week's stories. And what glorious stories they are indeed. This week's show, a doubleheader special spotlighting longtime Drabblecast favorite Frank Key. Frank's a baffling British blogger and broadcaster that you've heard pop up here and there on the show for years. Most recently, when we plugged his latest collection of short stories, Brute Beauty and Valor and Act, O Air, Pride, Bloom, Here, Buckle, in December. This week we bring you two stories which have previously appeared on Frank's website, hootingyard.org, Pabstis Tack, and The Breadcrumbs Man. And as always with doubleheader specials, the stories will be followed by an author's note recorded by the author himself. You know you're dying to hear what deranged methodology Frank Key must employ, what color spotted mushroom he must ingest, what hideous bat-faced god he must sacrifice the occasional bound and gagged homeless person to in order to do what he does. So stick around for that. Gather round, ye drabble folk, and hear ye, hear ye this trembling bard's tale of yore. Without further ado, we bring you Pabstis Tack by Frank Key. Pabstis Tack. Pabstus Sludge, Pabstus, Pabstus, of him we sing. We sing his praises, it seems to me, for want of anything better to do. Pabstus Tack sits on his great golden throne, belching out light, a blinding light, as gorgeous as it is, uncanny. And yet... It is an impure light, that is for certain, for with Papstis tack comes Papstis sludge. It is the latter who is the source of those scarcely perceptible, low, booming noises, grave and deep and sinister.
1: When Pabstus Pabstus was installed on his throne, there was carnival and carousing. Fools danced around maypoles, and jesting roisterers roistered and doistered as if tomorrow would never come. No one has ever been able to count the pies that were cooked that day. Many, many people drowned at the swimming gala at the old, crumbling outdoor pool, and ravens were seen hovering in the sky A post office person stuck pictures of Pabstus Tack to his hat and was chased across the fields by happily screeching children. But was there a trace of desperation in their screeching?
2: And tomorrow did come, of course, as everyone knew it had to. That was when the first rumbles were heard of Pabstus Sludge. To appease him, the throne was moved to a higher point on the hill, just above the coppice, where moles betrayed their presence in their usual mole-like way. A gang from the tavern headed thither armed with rifles, until Pabstus Pabstus made it known that moles were sacred and must never be harmed. Some say the men turned their rifles on themselves in terror.
1: Terror, it is said, is the only proper response to Pabstus' tack and to Pabstus' sludge. Wrapped up tight in their cardigans, hanging tilly lamps from the rafters of their cabin, the braver villagers plot his overthrow. Turnips are chewed. Sigurillos dangle from the soot-blackened lips of the vanguard. Secret anthems, never written down, are mumbled rather than sung. Food poisoning has wiped out most of these souls since Pabstus, Pabstus, first emitted his light in his booms 17 years ago.
2: The throne has been moved again, moved and reinforced now it is perched on a sort of concrete veranda by the edge of a lake in which only puffy and bloated fish may swim larval creatures are strewn on the shore watched over by one of pabstus tax lieutenants the air is thick clotted far too hot for this region with each faint boom from pabstus sludge the shoreline creatures twitch it is never dark here, thanks to Pabstus Tack.
1: Between the lake and the coppice lies the village. A deranged tangle of overhead wiring stretches beyond the horizon, supported on high wooden poles which sway and creak in the constant wind. Nowadays, children are no longer taught to sing. Hapstis tack, Hapstis sludge, Hapstis, Hapstis made the wind, Hapstis made
2: it because we sinned. But they should be. It is dangerous to forget.
3: Normally, when I write my stories, they begin with a title and maybe a few words or a phrase snatched from nowhere or that just comes swimming into my head. Quite by chance, both of the stories on this show, I'm very clear about where the inspiration came from because they're both modelled on stories by other people. When I begin writing, I have no idea of where it's going to go or what the end is going to be. So with both of these stories, I have this model in mind. But what then happened, happened as I wrote. I never redraft anything. I'm happy with each sentence before I move on to the next one. Sometimes I might write an entire paragraph, I like to have each sentence crafted to the best I can craft it before I move on to the next sentence. That gives me time to follow my nose as to where the story's going to go. And I'm often not really entirely clear at all, which probably is apparent when you read some of them. The Return of Pabstus Tack is absolutely basic on The Return of Martin Guerre, which was a film, a French film starring Gerard de Pardier, which was remade, an American version was remade as Somersby, or Somersby, uh, with Jodie Foster. Now, whether there's an original um, novel or short story that they're both based on, I don't know. Um, and in fact, I've never seen either film But what I do know is that the idea is that Martin Gurr, or Summersby is this soldier returning from the war long, long after he left, returning to his village. And it's not actually clear, is this the man who went away, or is it someone else? Is it an imposter in his place? So that was the basic idea behind the return of Pabstus Pack the idea of this man coming back from a long time away. Pabstus Tack is a name I use quite often in my stories. And whereas there are other characters like Dobson, the out-of-print pamphleteer, or Tiny Enid, the plucky, club-footed, fascist tot, who have quite defined defined as characters, Pabstus Tack... Uh, it's really just a name, and I can't remember from one story to the next who he is. So maybe that's quite appropriate, given that we're not sure that the Pabstus Tack who went away is the same as the Pabstus Tack who came back.
2: The Breadcrumbs Man by Frank Key
1: It is a curious fact that whenever I think of the characters who stalked the dreams and nightmares of my childhood, Stalin, Lev Yashin, Paavo Nurmi, the one who looms largest and most vividly is the one who never actually existed outside my infant imagination. The breadcrumbs man was tall and gangly and pale, and breadcrumbs were scattered in his hair and in his beard, and upon his coat and the pockets of his coat, they too were crammed with breadcrumbs and he left a trail of breadcrumbs in his wake as he patrolled the streets and alleyways and bridges of the ancient city where, in my dreams and nightmares, I grew to manhood. He followed me wherever I roamed, through the ancient streets and alleyways and across the ancient crumbling bridges over the river. Sometimes the river sparkled in the sunlight, but when I climbed down the steps to the mud bank, I saw it was filthy and rife with toxic sludge and tiny wriggling worms. The breadcrumbs man followed me down the steps to the mud bank too, and scattered his breadcrumbs upon the water, where they floated, neglected by the worms and any other living things that might present themselves in my sleeping brain from time to time. There were never, I remember, any birds. He always remained behind me, the breadcrumbs man, and if I turned to speak with him, he stood stock still and averted his gaze, shunning me so the words caught in my throat. But what would I have said? With Stalin and Lev Yashin and Paavo Nurmi, I would have long and animated discussions about communism and football and long-distance running, but I mixed them up so I would talk to Stalin about football, to Lev Yashin about long-distance running, and to Paavo Nurmi, the only non-communist of the trio, about communism. Sometimes, when I woke, I would recall these conversations in great detail and write accounts of them in my jotter, complete with stage directions. I remember thinking that one day, in years to come, I could mold these dialogues into a dramatic presentation and take the theaters of the land by storm. And years later, when I would grown to manhood, I came upon the jotter one day in a chest stuffed with memorabilia and I read a few pages and shook my head and guffawed, for it was all nonsense and witless nonsense at that. Yet the breadcrumbs man, who never spoke, and to whom I could never utter a word, the breadcrumbs man haunts me to this day. He no longer appears in my dreams and nightmares and has not done so since one summer afternoon in my early teens. I was at a picnic in a bright and buttercup splattered field and, replete with sandwiches and sausages and pastries and pickles, I fell into a doze. I found myself striding purposely across the most crumbling and ancient of the crumbling and ancient bridges across the river. I sensed that the breadcrumbs man was following me, and I turned my head momentarily to confirm that it was so. I quickened my pace. He did likewise. Then we were at the docks. I had never visited them before. There were huge tankers and container ships, some with hammer and sickle emblem daubed on their sides, and then there were smaller boats, fishing smacks and tugs and rowing boats. And for the first time, there were birds. Gulls screeched, guillemots tumbled and swooped, ox and skuas soared. I looked behind me. There was the breadcrumbs man, somehow paler than ever, almost a ghost, and... Again for the first time, he looked directly at me. His eyes were milky and blind and terrible. Suddenly, he emptied his pockets of breadcrumbs and shook the breadcrumbs from his hair and beard. The gulls and guillemots and auks and skuas descended in a frenzy of scavenge and peck, a blur of birds in which the breadcrumbs man was engulfed. When the birds flew away, he had vanished. I never saw him again. In the bright field, I woke. I cracked open a can of squelcho and slurped it down. My mother was packing things away in the picnic basket. I am going to be an ornithologist, I declared. I am not an ornithologist.
3: The other story, The Breadcrumbs Man, again has a specific uh, model which is that kind of ghost story in which someone is followed by a a race. The Familiar by Sheridan LaFanne. There's also The Step by E.F. Benson which I hadn't read before until I was asked to read it for Pseudopod. So I quite like the idea of this tension and anxiety of being followed around by something that you can never quite see, never quite place, which isn't really anything that happens with the breadcrumbs man, but that was my starting off point.
2: Fascinating. It's understandable that Key would rather not implicate himself in the sudden disappearance of any homeless, I suppose. One thing I love about Key's writing is the ever-growing mythos he's constructed, intentionally or not, by sometimes alluding or making reference to other characters, places, or things in his body of work. It's just enough to make you wonder, at the back of your mind, if there's some greater design to all this preposterousness. Not unlike real life itself. Another thing I love about it is the sheer mastery of understatement that pops up throughout, subtle and so totally British that Key wields and waves about with precise recklessness, like a chainsaw cackling into the night in a fashion reserved for the brilliant and clearly clinically insane. In one sentence, many people might drown at the swimming gala, and ravens might also be seen flying in the sky. If you're not paying enough attention, you just might miss the larval creature twitching on the shoreline. Well, we hope you enjoyed. If you did, throw us a donation via the PayPal or credit card links off our website, TravelCast.org. It allows us to pay authors, pay for our production costs, equipment, web space, and it goes a long way, trust me. Much appreciated. Alright, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Algernon Sydney is dead with this one here. Jack had his head in the clouds and his feet on the ground. He wasn't a remarkable man. He just never saw that airship anchor. One hundred character stories, not counting spaces. Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter, at the Drabblecasts. Get the winners and other fun drabbly bits week to week before everybody else. All right, folks, that's our show. We'll see you next week. And boy, I can't wait. We've got a really fun one from a really big-time name. I'll leave you in anticipation. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Spencer Bingham. Spencer's a Bay Area animator. He builds computers by day and posts art by night at BinghamAnimation.com. He can be tweeted at SCBingham, and he's currently surrounded by tiny plastic robots. Please send help. Our show this week was brought to you by Managing Editor Nikki Traden, Submissions Editor Nathan Lee, our Art Director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you... Moles are sacred and not to be harmed.